0: The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes and thedealwithyield.com. Welcome to The Deal with Yield with our host Joel Whipperforth, Director of E-Business for Winfield United, and John Zook, Agronomist for Winfield United. John, how was the harvest this year in your area of Southern Minnesota?
1: Well, Linda, the harvest is still the harvest, so it started slow. Uh, right now, the weather picked up. It looks like we'll have a couple good weeks and back on time. But it was definitely challenging, and I would expect that we might have some issues going into 2019 based on some of the fall conditions that we've been seeing.
0: What type of issues would we have in 2019 from what happened in 2018?
1: So probably the biggest thing in my mind, uh, just driving around, is seeing all the mud on the roads, and I kind of feel like a broken record here because it's like the third fall in a row that I've been seeing a bunch of mud on the roads but mud on the roads just means that we're getting in the field too wet and when we're in too wet most of the time we're having compaction issues and a lot of times we forget that 80% of the compaction that you can compact that soil is going to occur on that first pass and when we have moist soil conditions that's where the compaction can be the greatest so I don't want to paint a whole picture here that uh, we're in a downward spiral because certainly with the way our soils can respond to compaction could be a lot of different things but we are setting our ourselves up for maybe a little bit of a challenging spring in 2019 based on our fall conditions.
2: All right, John, you've been in the combine. What's the low? What's the high? What's the highest yield that you've seen for at least three seconds on the combine?
1: Well, I'm not that great of a combine driver, Joel, so I might have jerked the hydrostat a little (laughs) bit. Probably like like 389
2: 389 did you yep. get cab corn when you did that
1: no cab corn i just got done filling
2: that is the worst sound in the world of the little twinkling
1: corn kernels dancing on the top of the cab yep and when you hear that it's important not to just stop right away because that's when the cab corn happens you just slowly ease up and you just get a little tinkle enough where you could probably get up on top and brush it off before anybody sees it
2: Yep. There's always this saying of uh, those who haven't uh, ever made a mistake probably haven't done anything. Well, I hadn't made that mistake for a very long time up until about two years ago. And I wound up combining corn for a, a common friend of ours. And sure enough, I thought I could make it. I had 10 feet left. And as soon as I heard that first little trickle of corn, I panicked and I jerked our hydrostat backwards. Rookie mistake.
1: Yep. You had a full load. That combine was probably red, so you've seen it. You know, if you had a yellow combine, probably not that noticeable. Probably don't have to worry about it so much. Yeah, that's because the corn runs out the back on those ones.
2: All right, John, yield for 2018, we're kind of getting in the books out here. The soybean crop, western Minnesota, a little bit wetter early, eastern Minnesota, we
1: got in. What were soybean yields? So for here and around the area, I mean, soybean yields are super variable. I'd say 45 to 75. I heard some 80s on some fields pretty few and far between on the higher yields but really averages i think are coming in low 60s to high 50s is where most of those averages and that gives and takes away i mean as we went east we had some good moisture but with good moisture comes white mold and as we went west with good moisture guess what comes sds or idc all those sorts of things so we had some challenging years but we had good moisture and it held our average up there to pretty reasonable you know 60 bushel uh, low 60s
2: you know so sds i think we've We've heard this disease for at least the last five, six years, sudden death syndrome. The first three years, it just kind of wound up being on headlands, compacted areas, maybe a few drowned out spots on the end or areas that hold water. Are you seeing that expand? Are you seeing SDS across wider
1: strips of fields? Yeah, so I think that changes by season, but certainly this year, definitely wider strips on fields. We've got to remember, though, that SDS is a combination of four things that really have to happen. It's cold soil conditions, it's wet soil conditions, it's fusarium in the soil, and it's a pathway of infection. And you have to have all four of those things come together at the right time for that infection. Typically, that's where we see it in those stressed out areas, you know, on the headlands or the drives, whatever it might be. But this year, because we were so cold and so wet for so long, we probably got a little bit more infection of that fusarium the other thing that we have to remember is fusarium that one is cool and wet conditions and like i said already we had cool and wet conditions so the amplification of that fusarium is probably greater so by having that disease presence in the field we're also probably more prone of getting you know more spread out
2: You know, you you mentioned fusarium in the soil. One of the things I'm really excited about, I've been working with our lab group down at uh, Solum in Iowa, and they've been starting to pull out some DNA out of the soil. I'm I'm optimistic that someday, along with my chemical properties that I get from my soil, you know, pH, uh, phosphorus, potassium, that I'll also be able to get some components like fusarium, whether or not I've got a high incidence of that or a, a high pressure of that.
1: So now that I've know you that you've been working with the Solem Group, can I send soil through you to make them test it for me? <laughs> well, you probably can't. We can't
2: probably test at Solem for Fusarium just yet, but they've certainly got a different process than the traditional grind and dry or dry and grind process that the lab uses. And I think you know a little bit about this from the wet potassium tests. You've actually done some side by side analysis, or at least you know would have a qualified opinion. Wet K test, dry K test. If I'm looking at my potassium numbers and my soil test which test should
1: i be using wait a minute here did you just switch the conversation from disease to fertility on me well (laughs) you know i know that they're somehow related i don't know that the
2: science can necessarily unravel how they're related right now but certainly you know if i've got low testing potassium it's not available in the soil it certainly makes my plants more
1: susceptible to diseases right Yeah, so potassium is definitely a health benefit there. So there is a relationship, Joel. I'll give you credit for that. So to answer your question, down in when we do the wet K testing. If you're going to do wet K testing, you're probably going to expect a lower part per million because with that extractable K or that field moist K test, we're going to be basically looking at what is going to be more plant available. With the dry and grind method, a lot of times we're releasing potassium that may be or may not be plant available. So there's some a little bit more variances In that testing, so through that process, we can run that soil through that laboratory. It's a a less aggressive process, and that gives us the opportunity then to test DNA and things like that. The complication here is when we start testing DNA in the soil is we're looking at the soil flora and fauna. We have bacteria, and we have fungi. Well, the way you extract DNA from bacteria and fungi is totally different, and that's the complication. So trying to streamline that extraction process is potentially one of the hard parts of actually extracting that DNA and looking at it. Once we get DNA, heck, anybody can set up a qPCR machine in their garage and run the DNA through it. See, getting the DNA portion, that's probably the hard part. I'm not sure
2: everybody's going to have a qualitative PCR. P, what's the P? P Polymerase? Chain reaction, preliminary chain reaction. That's right. I'm I'm sure glad we have a a molecular biologist on the show to be able to help us understand these things. Biochemist. Biochemist. Okay. So, all right, I can't extract DNA from my soil sample just yet, but it's fall. We're headed into winter. I should be taking soil samples still, right?
1: yeah, so certainly should be taking soil samples. And and I mean, you're kind of leading into a great point here is looking at fertility and measuring that soil is going to be the first place to start in making your plan for 2019 or for the next growing season. And really what it boils down to, and and me as an agronomist now, I, I don't have as many years under my belt as others do, but I'm coming to the realization is a lot of times we've been treating soil fertility as we got to build, 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 and we got to use that soil sample as it comes back as a readout to then try to get higher what i'm realizing is in some cases how much higher do we need to go if you got that right level where you can actually measure hey i have potassium or i don't respond from that anymore now it's about how do you maintain or how do you put that fertility where your crop can use it and where you get the response and that i believe goes back to more of a precision egg or egg technology platform where you can actually look at yield removal now incorporating in that yield removal that egg technology i'm going all the way around here By looking at that, now we can almost pinpoint an area in the field that's underperforming or overperforming, and then what can we do? Maybe take a tissue sample to then see... Well, what the heck is, I got fertility down in the ground, got a high yielding crop, but where was my next limiting factor at? Yeah, you know, you talked about that
2: 380 that you saw on the yield monitor just for a moment, if, if only for. Well, a that moment. was on
1: the headland. So do you really believe that or no?
2: <laughs> I think it's believable. Uh, my dad's rule in the workshop was always that you were supposed to put the tool back where you found it. And if you look at nutrients as the tools, using crop removal in using your yield map as part of your fertility prescription, is a great mechanism in precision agriculture to put stuff back where you found it. But John, given all of that, given that I soil test intensely, maybe through grid sampling or zone sampling, I find that these tissue sample results that I have here in front of me still give me some opportunity to make some in-season management decisions on plant nutrition.
1: So I think certainly the in-season opportunity is going to be there. And, and Joel, my dad's rule was to, yes, put the tool back where he found it, but make sure you wipe the grease off of it first. <laughs> so let's be a little bit more specific because we definitely don't want a greasy toolbox after that.
2: Touché. So I'm looking at these tissue sample results, John, and uh, I'm looking at the national levels, and I'm looking at the great state of Minnesota, and I'm looking at the national levels as zinc, Pops up to the top, 77% of the time of some 20,000 samples on corn in particular, 77% of the time, zinc was deficient. Now, the state of Minnesota says 84% of zinc samples were deficient. Help me see from a national to a state
1: level, what's the disparity? Yeah, so the one thing that we go to right away was, well, geez, the rest of the United States is way better at applying zinc than Minnesota is. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case. What we do know is there's some variability that comes into whether or not, whether it's a soil type or crop uptake of how those nutrients are going to respond. So I think that brings it back to the more important point of all agronomy is local. And if you're looking at these trends, even if you're looking at the state, you might compare your results to a specific state and your results, whether you live in the state or not, might not match that. Well, your management practices are a lot different than what the rest of the state is doing. So pay attention to the trends. And when you find yourself within the trend, then start to ask questions of how to make it local and how can I make it fit my program to make sense. If, if you got to make a recommendation or an application, you can do the right shape and form of what that might be.
2: So I'm looking on here, John, and I also see some of my macronutrients that are coming up into trend statuses like deficient. Sort out the difference for me on the 17 essential nutrients required for plant growth and development. I've got macros, secondary macros, and then micros. How do I dish out what's
1: most important? So... That question to me sometimes is a little bit frustrating because we always say macronutrients, that's where we spend the bulk of our money, right? Nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. And really, all that the macro means is the plant needs them in greater quantities. So it doesn't mean that they're more important or less important than any of the other micronutrients. It just means that the plant needs them in greater quantities. Then from there, you go to secondary macronutrients, which would be like your calcium, your magnesium, and your sulfur. And just meaning that, hey, we need them in Large quantities, pounds still, but probably not as much as nitrogen pounds. Okay, then we go to the micronutrients where we're not talking in pounds anymore, we're talking in probably parts per million or ounces per acre or tenths of a pound per acre and we're not talking on a broad application we're talking on a specific application on a specific time for a specific crop and I think that's where tissue samples give us a guide with the macro and the secondary macronutrients but when we look at micronutrients that's where the tissue samples really come into play because we can specify the crop timing and make hopefully an advancement in the application if we see that there's a deficiency occurring
2: Yeah. so you know I I also find that this is a time of year where you might be out doing some tillage and you pick up that ear and you see a zipper ear on the side of it. Is there a particular nutrient that causes that?
1: Well, first off, if you're doing tillage and you pick up an ear, you probably didn't do it good enough with the combine. You're too worried about your cab corn on a headland. It was on the headland. Oh, okay, okay. So then you didn't have this this snout low enough. Then right. you're too worried about knocking up some snouts. Right. Gotcha. Neighbor's field. It oh, was in the neighbor's field. that was still standing. Yeah. Yep. So so the zippered ear, Ear. a lot of times a zippered ear is going to relate back to some kind of stress throughout the season. Typically it's going to be somewhat of a nutrient stress related but it also could represent moisture stress and I say moisture because we could have a drought, we could have a wet year, and that zipper is basically the way that that ear responds as far as tapering back. So you typically have a tip back followed by a zipper on the bottom side of the ear because if you think of how that ear was first pollinated or fertilized, those kernels at the bottom were fertilized first, working its way up to the top. The way the silk lays on that corn plant that silks lays over so actually the kernels on the bottom side of the ear were fertilized last because the rest of the silks coming from the part of the ear that was facing the stock were bent over the top of that so look at where those silks were coming out and basically that tip back is is just a timing of when those kernels were fertilized so then it's a, just an abortion from there of yeah. the latest to the earliest
2: my Agronomist mentor always said, you know, the corn plant is a phenomenal historian, that you can tell a lot about the corn plant just by looking at the ear or the stalks, the node lengths. When I look at the ear and I see missing kernels in between, what are some causes from that?
1: so the missing kernels a lot of times could be potentially some insect damage that you might see depending upon what kind of season it might be a lot of times what i'll see is i'll see some missing kernels and then you kind of like skip a row and you'll knock out a couple rows maybe so your rows around might change from maybe 18 to 20 on the bottom and then up on top you might you know might knock out a couple rows so you'll see a missing a skip in between there so sometimes that could be right belong to a micronutrient deficiency meaning the, the ear is responding to try to fill as much as it can it also could be potentially late herbicide application those sorts of things depending upon how much that bottleneck might be and and what timing that you see those missing kernels what about kernel depth how can i influence kernel depth that's a really deep question because I think that's the thing we chase around because we're getting to the point now how could I possibly get a bigger ear I got 22 around and 40 plus long and I'm still stuck at my 240 bushel mark well Mr. Farmer let me say here 240 bushel 5 years ago was like thinking we weren't going to probably I mean we'd be Living the high life. Yeah,
2: yeah. Download halfway down the yeah, field. Yeah.
1: Now it's a now all of a sudden it's it's how do we get more? And so I think that's what we've been thinking about a lot is how do we challenge ourselves to maybe it's more kernels on one hand, but maybe it's bigger test weight or more kernel depth on the other hand. And I think that goes along with grain fill. And so with grain fill come very important micronutrients, but then other topics like plant health, so fungicide application, making sure you're taking care of the insects, and probably the biggest part that we're missing in my mind is the traits on corn so late season root growth if we have some late season insect feeding our corn rootworm like to do that on us sometimes that does affect grain fill so it might not see it in sandability we might not see it in yield but that kernel depth might be affected that way too so
2: last but not least and this is probably the easiest one to see but the tip of the ear whether or not those kernels are yellow and pollinated and filled out is there a particular nutrient that might be
1: interacting with the tip of the ear Maybe nitrogen. Uh, So what the tip of the ear would show me is if they're pollinated in yellow and then they've shriveled up, it means that some nutrient deficiency, probably nitrogen at that point, because most of our other nutrients are taken up to that point, some nutrient deficiency, probably nitrogen, happened after tassel, after pollination. Now, if they're not yellow and they're shriveled up and it's just uh, they're more of a white, greener color, probably didn't pollinate in the first place. So that means that that tissue deficiency occurred before pollination. So that'd be going back to your historian comment of, well, when did it happen? I think, again, to figure out which nutrient deficiency it might be, you're going to have to take a tissue sample or a a post-stock nitrate or false soil, whatever it might be, to try to be the detective there to figure out which one it might be.
2: So, John, I'm looking at all these averages, and uh, I know I work with some growers that have been tissue sampling for a couple years, and they kind of see this this similar trend. I know in field forecasting tool, we've been using the tissue sample to calibrate in season the nitrogen and potassium levels in the plant but using this tissue sample in a field forecasting tool you've had some experience this summer taking it further along of actually helping that nitrogen recommendation or the in-season recommendation
1: coming to haven't you yes yeah, so believe it or not the answer to yellow corn is not always nitrogen Okay, and so, so I think the field forecasting tool actually helps us represent what that deficiency might be, and I've talked before about this complex N to and S ratio, and we don't need to get into that, but I think using the tissue sample, it gives a really nice guideline of where that needs to be, but then overlaying that with a field forecasting tool maybe gives us a mechanism to actually make a decision of timing and when that nutrient might be deficient and what nutrient it might be. So whether it's nitrogen or potassium, there's definitely some... Some value there. And then the answer could also be hey, guess what? It's maybe the deficiency that we're seeing or the ratio difference we're seeing is just Mother Nature could have too much water could have too little water and the field forecasting tool allows to guide us along that pathway as well.
2: So knowing that the winter meetings and uh, we're going to be talking a lot about tissue sample results from clinics uh, where can growers go this winter
1: to learn more about tissue sampling? So I think the best place to go is to go with a a local retailer or local owner that has experience in tissue sample and first if you don't have your own ask them questions about some of the trends they might be seeing but then definitely coordinate uh, whether whether it's your high yield, high management acre, or whether it's the acre you've been frustrated a little bit on and need a little help coordinate a plan, or maybe you can be helped with management in the next growing season around how to use those tissue samples, because like I said, agronomy is local. You can only do so much with trends.
0: You've been listening to the Deal with Yield with Joel Whipperforth, Director of E Business for Winfield United, and John Zuck, Agronomist for Winfield United. For additional episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes and thedealwithyield.com.